Greetings, everyone. I want to welcome all of us at Center Street Church, those of us here at Center Campus, as well as those joining us from our campus in Bearspa, Bridgeland, Airdrie, and South Calgary. I also want to welcome our online viewers as well. This weekend, we are wrapping up the Revivals Again sermon series. In revivals, Christians wake up from spiritual apathy. We come alive, we are renewed, we are filled with the Holy Spirit, and we engage in the mission that Jesus has called us to as a community. This has a ripple effect. As individual Christians come alive in our walk with God, it impacts the lives of those who are around us, and that leads to a corporate revival. In this series, I've given you some biblical examples of revival. We also talked about revivals from church history, like the first and second great awakenings, the prayer revivals, the Welsh revival, revivals in the Christian college campuses, the Saskatoon revival, and the history of Santa Street Church, what God has done in our midst. I made references to revival leaders like Jonathan Edwards, John Wesley, Charles Finney, Evan Roberts, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Now, I hope as we grow in our knowledge of revivals, it will also stir our hearts to seek God for an awakening today, that we will all start believing what God has done in the past is well able to do in our time. And if we want to see revival today, there are some things that we need to reclaim, we need to bring back. That is our role, our part in ushering both a personal and a corporate revival. It's the same. We need to reclaim prayer, reclaim the Word, the Bible, reclaim the Spirit. We talked about it last weekend. And today we will conclude the series by talking about reclaiming zeal. All of us have run into Christians with zeal. Those with a refreshing, authentic, genuine love for Jesus. After your conversation with them, you go away impacted by their contagious passion. They carry the fragrance of Jesus with them. Their love for the Lord overflows. They serve so cheerfully. What is sad is we only seem to have a handful of such people. They seem to be so rare. But God's desire is for all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ to be marked by zeal. In the Old Testament, God instructed the priests to keep the fire burning on the altar of the tabernacle and never let that fire die. The Lord says in Leviticus 6, 12, the fire on the altar must be kept burning. It must not go out. Uh, today, if our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, then our heart is the altar. And the Holy Spirit lights a fire in the altar of our hearts. That fire, that passion and zeal for God should never go out. It should burn without ceasing. It is a sign of uninterrupted worship. The Apostle Paul was marked by such zeal. 
all in, on fire, sold out for Jesus until the final day of his life. His encounter with Jesus was so real that Paul concluded everything else was garbage in comparison to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus. And Paul articulates the heart of a person marked by zeal when he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I tell you, that is not a statement of just the spiritual elite. That ought to be the cry of every follower of Jesus Christ. When we are personally revived, that becomes the cry of our heart. When a church experiences revival, it is a community so in love with him that we conclude for us to live is Christ. Zeal and passion are one of the distinguishing marks of a revived community of God. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 11, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. The word for fervor can be translated as a glow or a blaze. It means deep inside you are boiling in your passion for Jesus. Your heart is on fire. Now, I'm more than convinced that should be the defining characteristic of any church. Not the exception, but the norm. It should be the defining characteristic of all of our ministry areas and our groups. A church on fire. A place with a passion and love for Jesus that is so contagious that our entire community is aglow, shining the light of Jesus brightly in the power of the Holy Spirit. I tell you, that church is an irresistible church. Who doesn't want to be part of a community like that? Zeal is all about loving the Lord Jesus with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. Jesus has so captivated your heart that he deserves your highest affection. And when you read the book of Acts, you will agree. That was a good description of the early church. They were a community ablaze for God. However, within a few decades, something happened, and many of the churches in the first century lost that fervency, lost that zeal, and they walked away from their first love for Jesus. How do we know that? In his message to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, Jesus has a message for each one of them. Five out of the seven churches were clearly in need of revival. Today, our sermon text will be taken from Jesus' message to the church at Ephesus. If you're physically able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word from Revelation chapter 2. Verses 1 to 7. Revelation 2, 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him 
who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Would you pray with me? Lord, would you give us ears to hear what you have to say? Would you give us hearts that are open and receptive to you? Pray for the genuine conviction of your Holy Spirit as we examine our hearts to see where we are in our walk with you. Lord, our prayer is that you will speak to us personally. Each one of us will hear your message for us. So minister in the power of your Spirit. And we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You all may be seated. Jesus is writing a personal letter to the churches in the first century, and these words are applicable for us today. The one who has eyes like blazing fire knows his church inside out. Now, the phrase I know is used repeatedly to signify nothing is hidden from his eyes. The church at Ephesus was an iconic church with a rich history. Ephesus was an influential ancient city known for its wealth, power, and fame. It was the center of economic, political, and religious activity. The city had the incredible temple of Artemis, considered to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. A steeped in idolatry and temple prostitution, Ephesus was an immoral city. And they staunchly opposed the gospel message. But through the faithful labors of the Apostle Paul, a church was finally planted in the city. Now think about the who's who of the Christian world today, the Christian leaders that you admire and respect. If they all came together to start a church, that would be the equivalent of the church at Ephesus. The Apostle Paul was the founding pastor of the Ephesian church. He then hands it over to his prodigy, Timothy, to carry on the work. And church history says the Apostle John, after his exile, returned back to the church at Ephesus. 
And along with that, we have prominent leaders like Aquila and Priscilla and Apollos who labored in the Ephesian church. So can you imagine what a church with such godly leadership would look like? Paul writes his letter to the Ephesians, and it is a theological masterpiece. If you look at most of Paul's letters, it is addressed to churches that were facing a particular concern or a problem or some kind of a theological heresy. But there was nothing wrong with the Ephesian church. They had no challenges, no problems, no theological heresies during rounds. So the book of Ephesians is simply a letter of encouragement to a matured, zealous congregation. Do you know how Paul finishes off the letter to the Ephesians? This is the final verse, Ephesians 6:24. Paul writes, Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. So that was a distinct characteristic of the church at Ephesus. They loved the Lord with an undying love. They had a strong love relationship with Jesus. That love resulted in their zeal and passion. Jesus, as he speaks to the church at Ephesus here in Revelation, commends them for two things. He commends them for their hard work and their perseverance. The first part of verse 2, Jesus says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. And they served in a city that opposed the work of the gospel. There was a lot of persecutions around, but undeterred by all of these oppositions, the church at Ephesus carried on in the ministry faithfully without being weary. Secondly, Thanks to the influence of godly leaders like Paul and Timothy, this church had its doctrinal convictions spot on. They were theologically grounded, and they were rejecting the false teachers. So the last part of verse 2, Jesus says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. Imagine being under the preaching influence of the Apostle Paul and Timothy. This church knew its Bible. They were right in all of their doctrinal convictions. And Jesus commends them for that. So, so far, so good. The church at Ephesus is being praised through the words of the Savior. And then, out of the blue, Jesus says something that would have shocked them. For Jesus brings a serious charge, a deep concern, something not to be taken lightly. He says here in Revelation 2 verse 4, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. That was a thunderbolt. Came out of nowhere. The word, yet I hold this, indicates a sharp contrast. You're doing well in some areas of your life, but I'm concerned about this particular area where you're failing fundamentally. 
for all their external zeal, the believers of the Ephesian church had forsaken their first love for Jesus. And the key here is the word, first love. It's first in terms of rank or priority. The believers of the Ephesian church had not lost their love for Jesus altogether, but they had forsaken their first love. First love signifies passion and zeal. So this text is all about that. Passionate, zealous love for Jesus that ought to be preeminent in the life of every believer. The church at Ephesus was no longer captivated by their love for Jesus. They were no longer motivated by that. In the midst of the frenzy of activities that they were engaged in, from being industrious and running church programs to volunteering to fundraising to sending missionaries to the other parts of the world, they had sidelined something that was fundamental, their personal walk with Jesus. It slipped into going through the motions of church life, though their heart was not in the right place. Now, if I have to paint a picture of first love, just think of a guy and a girl dating seriously and all set to be engaged. If you're married, think about those good old days when you made your soon-to-be spouse believe that you're actually perfect. You convince them. You're so thoughtful in your words and actions that you swept them off their feet. All day, both of you couldn't help but think about the dinner date in the evening. There always was room in the schedule because this was a priority. Everything else came second. You always had time to meet. You say no to your friends so you can be with her. You say no to the family invitation so you can just hang out with him. When your boss at work wanted you to do some extra work in the evening, you said, heck no, I have a more important appointment. Your priorities were straight. Think of the days when you texted or talked late into the night. Who needs sleep? It is overrated. The sheer thrill of being with each other, holding hands, going for long, leisurely walks, and having extended conversations was so precious that hours spent in each other's company felt like minutes. You laughed at each other's jokes, even though it wasn't really funny. You were patient with one another's faults. When you're in love, you sometimes do silly things. A good friend of mine said he and the girl he would marry one day were separated for a while due to her going to a different university. So he would go into the shower, apply her favorite shampoo to his hair, and cry his eyes out. (laughs) Well, we all have done embarrassing things like that, which we would not admit today. And then... The same couple, madly in love with each other, get married. And as the years go by, 
the spark is no longer there in the marriage. Something goes missing. Time for long conversations, holding hands, and going for leisurely walks is replaced by unending hours at work or long household chores. You say yes to other things, knowing very well that this is going to infringe the time that you're going to be with each other. And all the long texts and phone calls are now followed by abrupt silence or quick conversations that leads to communication problems. The delight of being in each other's company is overtaken by the monotony of married life. This couple has lost their first love, their passion, that distinct edge in their relationship. But interestingly, in the Bible, the love of a married couple is constantly used as an analogy to compare our relationship with God. For what happens in a human relationship can easily happen in our spiritual relationship. You know, in marriage, an erosion of love does not happen overnight. Nobody walks up to their spouse one fine morning and say, I don't love you passionately anymore. It happens ever so slowly. It is subtle. It is a gradual erosion. What sometimes is true of marriage can also become true of our love relationship with Jesus. Thirty-five years earlier, Paul had commended the Ephesian church for their undying love for Jesus. But now that love for Jesus that characterized their lives, the love that motivated their zeal, that which stirred their passion and consumed them inside out, that red-hot zeal for Jesus started to wane, and they were drifting away. Hear me. Correct doctrines are important. Engaging in ministry activities is crucial. But if they don't flow out of our love for Jesus, then we have missed the point. Our service is an overflow of our affection, our adoration, our devotion to Jesus, not a replacement. And what sustains that zeal and passion in the long run is that daily love relationship with Jesus that fuels us enables us to persevere and run the race. So let me ask you a personal question. Was there a time when you were closer to Jesus than you are today? If so, it's pretty obvious to me that you have walked away from your first love. There are many of us who started our Christian life with zeal and passion, myself included. I had never seen a Bible until the age of 17. Raised in a Hindu family, I had a distorted view of God. 
I was afraid of a God who will punish me for my wrongs. It was fear that motivated me to live a good life. I thought I had to plead and beg God to somehow accept me. But when I was 17 years old, I heard the gospel message for the very first time. And this was a a radical message, an eye-opener. But this message was about a God who loved me so much that he did not wait for me to reach out to him, but he first reached out to me. And this message was about how he stepped into our world of sin and brokenness, that he did not keep a safe distance from the muck and the mire. And I heard that this God was crucified in my place, that my sins that justified punishment were laid on him, and I was washed in the blood of Jesus and made clean. Hallelujah. And I said yes to Jesus. How could I refuse a love like that, a love that I had never known previously? And as I placed my faith in Jesus Christ, I received new life a new identity, a new purpose. I had peace, joy, and an intimate walk with God. And so many times, even now, I look back at those moments because my prayer times at the time was so refreshing. It felt like God had stepped into the room. And I'd be reading the Bible late into the night, 1 a.m. in the morning, because I was so hungry and I wanted to feed myself spiritually. And I couldn't help but share this good news with those around me. I didn't care what people thought of me. How could I hold this good news to myself? And when I sensed that the Lord was calling me to preach, I was so in awe of the call of God that he would pick me of all people to be a mouthpiece for him. I was blown away. I was so overwhelmed by the privilege. And many times during the day, sometimes at night, I would burst into songs of praise. Now, I couldn't get through a worship service like this without being moved to tears. And so many times I'd intentionally pause and stop and say, Jesus, I love you. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for adopting me in your family. Thank you for all of the blessings that you have lavished upon my life. Like so many of you, that is how I started my Christian journey. I was motivated by this deep love and an undying passion for Jesus. But as the years go by, I know how easy it is to drift. This incredible truth of the gospel can lose its novelty. It no longer grips your heart like it used to. You lose that sense of awe and wonder. And if I were to be honest and confess to you, over the years, there have been seasons when I skipped my quiet times for days because I'm too busy 
serving in ministry. Now, I didn't read the Bible devotionally because I'm doing sermon prep work. Now, I can let an opportunity to share Jesus with someone go by because I'm running from one appointment to another. That I could go through the motions in a worship service like this, sing with my lips and not mean much for my heart. And those are the moments I have to pause and say, Jesus, don't let that passion and the love that I have for you to ever fade. Don't let that fire to cease burning. But let me follow you passionately and zealously as long as you give me breath. I keep going back to how I started my walk with Jesus. So let me ask you, was there a time when you were closer to Jesus than you are now? If you find yourself in that place, then pay attention to these words. These are for you. The first part of verse 5, Jesus says, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. The three things Jesus is highlighting here. First of all, he says, remember. Then he says, repent. And thirdly, he says, repeat. Do the things that you did at first. First of all, remember. Remember. Don't forget how he saved you. And don't become so sophisticated in your Christian life that you forget the miracle of the cross. And we all have unique testimonies, every single one of us. It's different. We may have been raised in a Christian home or we came to faith in Jesus from a completely different worldview. But what is common is he loved us and he pursued us first. 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because he first loved us. Friend, if you love Jesus today, the only reason is because he first loved you. Never forget that. Unfortunately, the church at Ephesus had become so sophisticated that they'd forgotten that love. But there was a time in their life when they would go to the temple of Artemis and do the nasty things, things I can't even say out in a sermon. Temple prostitution was common in the city of Ephesus. They were indulging in open immorality. They were steeped in a cesspool. They were languishing in the dark. They were enslaved and gripped by sin. And then through the preaching of the gospel, the light of Jesus came. And Jesus reached into that cesspool in Ephesus 
and that he caused his light to shine and rescued them from darkness. He broke the chains. He showered them with his love. He gave them new life. They became a new creation, sons and daughters of the living God. And Jesus is saying to them now, stop, go back, go back to those times when you started your walk with me. And that is what some of us need to do today. When your love for Jesus is growing dim, Think of how you started your walk with Jesus or about that season when you had a vibrant, pulsating love for Jesus. And never stop being in awe of your own salvation. It's the greatest miracle. So remember that moment and ask God to rekindle that love. For that is your first love. Remember, secondly, Jesus says, repent. If there are things that are competing in your life that are messing up your spiritual priorities, then it's time to repent. Repentance is a change of heart and a change of thinking. And we often associate repentance with serious scandals moral failures or major slip-ups. But losing your first love for Jesus is so subtle. It's not a gross sin. It is something that will not get you into trouble. In fact, in most Christian congregations, you will fit right in. You may look better off than most Christians, but if you know in your heart that you have lost your first love, then you have to repent and ask God to rekindle your love for him. And then Jesus says, repeat. Go back to those things that you did at first. You never graduate from the ABCs of the faith. Really, it doesn't matter how spiritually mature you are. It's all about going back to the basics, what we've been talking about in this series. It's about reclaiming prayer, reclaiming the Word, and be guided by the teachings of the Bible. Reclaim the spirit-filled life and seek for ongoing empowerment and together engage in mission as a community. And do it over and over and over. Just a couple of weeks ago, we had the Revive Us Again prayer night right here in our central campus. And about 500 people, both in person and online, engaged in a time of passionate prayer. It was powerful, visibly moving, and it impacted all those who came. But I don't want that to be a one-off thing. I don't want that to be just something we do because we're preaching a series on revival. This is something that ought to be ongoing. 
This ought to be the passion of the people of God to come together for corporate prayer. So every third Thursday of the month, as a church, we gather for corporate prayer, which happens to be this Thursday, May 19 at 7 p.m. Come for this time of prayer. Put it in your calendar. It is not unreasonable for a church of our size to meet once a month for corporate prayer times. It's not about doing it once. It's about doing it again and again and again. Prayer the influence of the Word, the infilling of the Spirit ought to be an ongoing influence in our lives. So Jesus says to those who have forsaken their first love, remember, repent, and repeat. But if we are bent on going our own way, that if a Christian community is not willing to heed the voice of Jesus and go in this direction. And Jesus has a warning in our text. Listen to this. The last part of verse 5. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So if we continue in our own ways, and ignore the promptings of the Spirit. We have forsaken our first love as a community, as a church, and we are just going through the motions of church life. And what Jesus says to the church at Ephesus would become true of us. Jesus says to them, I will remove your lampstands from its place. That's just another way of saying, I will remove your influence as a church. I will not bless your efforts. You will be on your own. I'm taking my hands off you. And I tell you that's a terrifying place for any church to be at, where we are going to operate in our own strength and not have the favor and the blessing of God. And yet I know of so many churches like that, merely going on in their own strength, a form of religion without power that fails to impact the world around them. Do you know what was the problem with the church at Ephesus? The problem was they were living off the momentum of the past. They had a generation of godly people who followed the Lord passionately. They served the Lord zealously. But this present generation that Jesus was speaking to did not share in that conviction. They merely coasted. They were on cruise control, and they totally missed the mark. I tell you, what I'm describing here is a potent threat for us here at Santa Street Church. For we had a generation of godly people who served passionately, gave sacrificially. They lived all out for Jesus. They were zealous in everything that they did. 
But today, you and I can't live off the exploits of the previous generation. It is time for this generation to step up and do our part. Hear me. If we don't play the role that God has assigned for us, then our influence as a church will diminish. I wonder if Jesus was writing a letter to our congregation, what would he say? If he is bringing a message to us, what do you think he will highlight? I bet he will commend us for our doctrinal beliefs. We hold on to the Word of God. We are conservative in our theology. We preach the true gospel. We have that spot on. Jesus may even commend us for our hard work. I mean, look at the various ministries, the things, the activities that happen here in our church. All that we do, we have a lot happening, don't we? But more than anything else, I pray that Jesus will commend us for our love for him. For if we love Jesus with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and everything that we do flows out of that, then we have his approval, his blessing, and his favor. And rather than removing our influence, he will fan the fire within us into flame and cause this flame to burn so brightly that our city will be changed, our province will be changed, our nation will be changed, and what God is doing here will go to the uttermost parts of the world. We have a God who is able to do that. There is no limit to what God can do when we are fully yielded to Him, when we love Him passionately. So let me ask you once again, was there a time when you were closer to Jesus than you are now? A British evangelist, Gypsy Smith, was asked, what is the secret of revival? Gypsy Smith said, go home. Take a piece of chalk. Draw a circle around yourself. And then pray fervently, oh Lord, revive everything within the circle. Church, that's where it all starts, with personal revival. May the cry of the psalmist be the cry of our heart. Lord, will you not revive us again, that once again your people may rejoice in you, that we will delight in your presence, that our spiritual priorities will be straightened, Draw a circle and pray that everything within this circle will be revived first.
that your life will be unrecognizably transformed. And when that happens in our personal life, it will inevitably impact the lives of those who are around you. Would you take a moment of silence right now and just reflect on what you've heard? Just close your eyes. This is a solemn moment. God has spoken to us, and this is a time for us to respond to a God who knows all things, who sees all things. So as one church in many locations, all of our campuses, even those who are watching us online, I'm going to ask you, was there a time when you were closer to Jesus than you are today? If you say yes to that, when you have walked away from your first love, and this is an opportunity the Lord is giving you to return back to your first love, to reorder your priorities, to give Him the place that He deserves in your life. The purpose of this exercise is not to pour feelings of guilt or condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is rather an invitation from the one who loves us so much into the life abundant and full that he wants us to experience. So if you feel the conviction of the Spirit and you want to return to your first love, if you want Jesus to rekindle that passion and zeal in your heart, would you please stand wherever you are so I can pray for you? when we stand, we are making a statement, a declaration in the spiritual realm that we want to see something change and transform in our lives. So let's maintain this moment of worship. See all of you, a number of you standing here. This is a time for you to connect with God. His Spirit is here in this place bringing conviction, opening eyes to see the truth of who He is. And He's inviting you to come. Come to that place of fullness in your walk with Him. Come to that place where your love for Him overflows afresh. Come and receive a rekindling of the fire so that it will burn brightly. Would you, in your own words, take a moment to ask God to do just that? And after a moment of silence, I'll pray for us. You are the God who knows all things, who sees all things. That nothing is hidden from your eyes. 
You can see through every heart. So you see the people who are standing right now. I want to pray for us. Lord, bring us to that place where we were in our walk with you. When the cross meant everything to us. When the very thought of the cross moved us. That we knew that we were loved and forgiven and accepted and adopted into your own family. Would you restore that once again? That there are competing priorities in our life which we want to lay down at this moment. If we've been passionate about making money. We've been passionate about advancing in our career. We've been passionate about travel and so many lesser priorities that don't matter much in light of eternity. But today, we want to declare as a community, we want to be passionate for you, Jesus. And we want to say from our heart, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Oh, would you be that all-consuming love of our life? That, Lord, when we think about all that you have done for us, our love is a response because you first loved us. So may you light a fire in our hearts, a fire that will burn brightly, that we will not waver in our walk with you and in our commitment to you. But, Lord, this fire will be lasting. It will never cease to burn. That, Lord, you will help us until our last breath to follow you faithfully, to have you as the number one in our life. Would you seal our commitment today and empower us by your Spirit that going forward, we will be able to live as the revived community of God's people. So you, do you be all glory, honor, and praise. We love you, Lord. And we pray these things in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.